Organic is not vegan? What? Are you kidding? In this episode, we are going to unpack, that's what you always say, <laughs> the entire story of this, well, it's not really the entire story, but Greg Lottis comes here all the way from Colorado State University to counsel the Barretts from Wicks, Arkansas, who are transitioning their former chicken farm cattle ranch into a vegan model of operation. We're going to listen to all the ins and outs and really unpack all that veganic idea. And if you don't know who Greg Lydas is, you might have seen his face in Cowspiracy. So uh, that's really exciting. But anyways, we are for you. That too. Rowdy. Rowdy. Yes. Vegan. Two, two, two rowdy vegans. 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 Two, Two rowdy vegans, one plus one equals two rowdy vegans. With us today, we have, I hesitate just saying Greg Lattice because you have so much experience um, and you've been trained in so many different modalities. But, you know, because I know you're a humble man uh, full of brilliance, I'm just going to say Greg Lattice is here with us from Colorado. He uh, is a professor at Colorado State University. Not a professor. Oh, you're not a professor. No. You are a... I'm the manager of the Western Colorado Research Center. He's a manager of the Western Colorado Research Center. And he's got degrees in uh, horticulture, geology. geology, and economics. And so he's here in Wicks, Arkansas, because we have been, as most of you know, and have been following our story... We have uh, been, as part of our story with the Ranchers Advocacy Program, interviewing the Barretts um, and helping the Barretts uh, transition from what used to be a chicken farm here, uh, where they were sending over 100,000 chickens to, uh, to their death every 52 days. Um, cows, they've got over 215, 220 cows now that we're trying to figure out uh, what to do with. And part of the team this week was here. Uh, I guess it was probably about 10 to 12 people all total here this week, the last three days. And we all sat around and discussed various different ways that we were going to transition this farm, what might work, what wouldn't work, all that. Greg is here as an expert in the field of veganic agriculture. That's one of his most uh, favorite things to think about, talk about. Uh, research and so those of you that have seen Cowspiracy you know I, I didn't put two and two together but somebody told me um, I think it was Kip I was talking to Kip a few days ago and he said Greg Lightus he was in Cowspiracy <laughs> and I was like what oh my gosh so now I'm going to go back and watch it so I can see that section so welcome thank you thank you for being here thank you for offering all your expertise here with us today yeah and Greg I just wanted to ask you something which is so Tell me again how long you've been vegan? Uh, since 1991. So 27, 28 years. Now. That's crazy. So I'm 23. <laughs> so like you've been vegan for like literally longer than I've been alive, which is just incredible. Um, wow. And so what's your story? How did you come to, you know, be vegan and then eventually get into vegan agriculture and to where you are right now? The trend, you know, the, the transition to veganism was just a slow process that most people take. You start out as a vegetarian. Then you realize that you're not being consistent because of the dairy and all the other aspects of just being a vegetarian. And then you just decide one day to be vegan, and that's that's how it goes. And so that's pretty simple. So it wasn't really uh, it wasn't really um, 
thing for you. I mean, you saw it and you realized it and you did it. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> wow. 27 years ago, that's that's how it worked. There wasn't as much support in the in society for this kind of stuff. There wasn't, you know, a big movement. Yeah. There was a movement, but not as big. And yeah. so you just had to make that, you know, that transition yourself. What did you eat back then, 27 years ago? I mean, it's much I, different know, I today. Eat, I eat back then just like I eat now. I, yeah, I, I like, like whole plant foods. I just, whole foods, you know, I just, you know, beans and rice and lots of vegetables. I mean, that's the, that's the best way to eat, whether it's 100 years ago or yesterday. It's still the best way to eat. So mm. you don't need to have all of the processed things that make it easy to transition, though I'm not against any of those things. I mean, I like some people like that way to go, but but if you're just eating whole foods, plant-based, it doesn't matter if you were born in 1500 or That's so true. You just, we make it you know, so difficult, don't we? I mean, because I was looking in your lunch kit because um, it was wide open and you had all kind of oranges and bananas and apples and, you know, and you had some hummus in there and, you know, just real simple. Yeah, it's pretty simple. Yep. My dad gave me some chips too, and he he he, he fixed oh, it up yeah. for me. So there was some soup, and you know, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So I want to ask you about some definitions going in, um, and what I would like to talk about is is kind of illuminates what all these things are, like what is veganic agriculture, what's the importance of it, and why it's different from different models. Like people might have heard about organic or things like that. Um, so what is veganic agriculture? So. If you like, just to try to dissect the term vegan mm -hmm. and organic, the, the way most people would understand it is that it's organic agriculture, but veganized. Right. You know, every, everything we do is kind of veganized. You right. Take, you take milk, but we don't want milk. We want almond milk. So it's kind of veganized. And it's a way of looking at agriculture to say, well, all of the ingredients that go into agriculture, we can get into more detail about that. Yeah. We're just going to veganize it. Right. Okay. It gets more complicated than that because a vegan ethic laid onto agriculture is a little more complicated than just saying, well, we're just going to veganize things. You, uh, you can't veganize a pesticide. You know? So what I like to use is the term stock-free. There are, there, are, there are organizations, there's at least one organization, I think it's based out of England, that, that will certify farms as stock-free. What they're saying there is that you're growing food and you're eliminating animal inputs into the system. So, um, currently, if you are an organic grower and you're certified organic, most likely you're using fertilizers that come from confined animal feeding operations. Okay, so you're getting chicken litter, chicken manures, composted manures, or even fish emulsions from the waste products of the fishing industry. And the organic certification process and the organic agricultural foundations that, that, that guide it, so there's a um, uh, National Organic Standards Board, and, and they decide what is considered organic and what is not. They have no problem with animal agriculture of any, of any kind. They don't, in, in the organic standards, you're not allowed to confine animals like that. You're supposed to have free-range chickens. You're supposed to have cows that have access to pasture, even though that's not the case in, in, in reality. They, they, they claim that's the standard that they're trying to uphold. But they make an exception, and they say that all of the fertilizers that you can use in the organic system can come from a conventional 
confined animal feeding operation because it's a waste product of that of that system and they'll accept that as part of the inputs into an organic system. Mm-hmm. You may have to feed your chickens organic grain, but you can fertilize that organic grain with the waste product of industrial factory farms. And that's Gosh. built into the system. And there's no way you can alleviate all these capos with enough, I mean, with all this fecal matter. Uh, I mean, you, there's no way to, I, it seems to me like they're trying to get rid of it all from these capos so that they have a place to put it. Yes. You know, and right. so they're using it as a, like a, a way to cause well, an organic. In, in, in many places where, where they're remote and they don't have um, a way to, to, to profit off the waste, a lot of that waste is just processed or dispersed into the environment. So it ends yeah. up in the Gulf of Mexico or it's applied to land that eventually runs off and causes eutrophication in rivers and streams. But in some of the facilities, let's say you're in California, and uh, you can turn the waste of a chicken house that's you know a nice industrial factory farm, you can take that waste and you can convert it into a fertilizer that then you can sell to an organic grower somewhere, and so you have another revenue stream to help make the system more profitable. The, prob- the problem you have here is that every step of the way, th- there are losses in the system, and, and there are you know, there, there are costs to producing whatever you're doing. And so, and so if you really look at the life cycle analysis of all this, if you go back each step and start from the beginning and see, you know, how much energy, how much land is needed, how much fertilizer is needed in the beginning of the process, and you work it all the way into the organic system, because the organic system starts starts with the fertilizer, not before the fertilizer. They don't really mm-hmm. consider all the costs that go into producing the waste from that industrial factory farm. Mm-hmm. And just they just draw the line. Nowadays, many universities are looking at a complete life cycle analysis of these systems. And they go behind, they go further than just saying, okay, we're going to start with the fertilizer. We're going to go back to how did you create that fertilizer oh there's a factory farm well how did that factory farm become get created you know what inputs went into that the embodied energy in the buildings the resources used to concentrate in those systems and when you when you look at that that's where you're seeing now a lot of publications coming out worldwide that really um uh, enforce the idea that animal agriculture is so consumptive and such an impact on the environment because they don't start at the beginning of the organic process, they go right. all the way back to every input that goes into the organic systems. And when you do that, the the results are not, they're just, they're disturbing. Right. Yeah. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about from the point of view of a consumer who's trying to, you know, make decisions <clears throat> of what to buy. Like a lot of our audience is vegan and part of being vegan is that we choose what we want to buy because we have values and we want to be able to uphold those values as best as possible. Um, so that being the case that organic agriculture includes waste products of um, factory farming, you know, if someone was to, and, and I guess there are three fronts that I want to ask you um, this from, but from an environmental uh, and ethical point of view in terms of causing harm to animals, you know, what would be the difference between me purchasing something that's organic and something that's now not organic? Okay, so if it's not organic, we'll call it conventional. Got it. Okay, and then if it's organic, there's clear certification for right. organic. 
And there's, there's kind of a quandary here. It's, yeah. it's, it's not a true paradox, but there's a quandary. So if you, or if you buy something conventional, most likely the fertilizer that was used to grow those crops, you know, whether it's kale or carrots or mushrooms, or, came from synthetic fertilizers. The nitrogen was synthesized from natural gas. The phosphorus was mined from the earth. That's not synthetic. The potassium, the calcium, magnesium, the sulfur, the iron, that was all mined. Mm-hmm. Um, the nitrogen was processed from, from natural gas and turned into an available form of nitrogen that plants can uptake. So when we look at that, we say, well, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty impactful. And so we don't want to be conventional. The other way to look at conventionals is they use pesticides. And they're just, you know, they're, they're environmental toxins and they're, they're used when you have any kind of a monocrop system. And even polycultures, you have to, you have to control pests. So you have these, these toxins and, and, and most people would choose not to put them in their body. And there's been a lot of work done where people test the fruits that you buy in the store and 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 they find out that there's still some residual on the vegetables and and the fruits and so they say oh, I don't want that I don't, I don't want toxins in my system and that's conventional so you have two issues there are the are the synthetic fertilizers a a problem for us and are the toxins a problem for us let's forget about the land use because the land use is the same whether you're organic or you're conventional so then we go to an organic system and you take out the persistently toxic chemicals. They still use a lot of pesticides. Really? Yeah. In some cases, more pesticides Mm. than the other system. But those pesticides tend to be less toxic and not persistent in the environment because they come from Mm. natural sources. Ah. Okay, so there are concentrations of like bacterial products and things like that that are toxic to animals or there are viruses and things like that that are very specific. But they have some impact, and but they have much less impact, and the toxicity doesn't persist. So the food you're getting is 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 healthier in that respect. So then they need fertilizer in the system, and they get that fertilizer typically through the concentration of animal waste in these big industrial farms. It doesn't have to be that way. So how is that? I'm, because this is the, what do you call it, the conundrum? or The quandary. The, the quandary, quandary, the conundrum, is how is organic, you know, for, for me as a vegan, mm-hmm. when I first realized that even organic wasn't vegan, if it's coming from a concentrated animal feeding operation. If the fertilizer's yeah, coming if the, from Yeah, if the fertilizer's coming from that, where all the cruelty's happening, then I'm contributing to more suffering, and I'm trying to do my best as a vegan. So what do we do? Well, you, there's there's a quandary here. You, yeah. You, you're looking at health and toxicity versus what's right. the impacts of the fertilizer. Right. So so I guess it depends on people's values. So if someone actually valued more, say, the environment or the ethical side of not causing harm to animals, then it might be better for them to not buy organic. But then if they care more about health, then maybe they should buy organic. Is that kind of like the quandary? Well, well so so... <laughs> So, so, so now we can look at we can look at the a little more utopian idea. Here. Yes, let's mm-hmm. so let's go there. You can you can grow things organically mm-hmm. without the use of fertilizers from the industrial factory farms. It can be done. 
requires additional land and it requires rotational systems that'll, that, that, that allow you to plant into fields that had been previously cover cropped. And, and when you cover crop using legumes, it helps to put nitrogen into the soil. And so then you don't need as much outside inputs into your system. So if you, if you grow cover crops and, and, and compost those, or, or what they call green manure, instead of animal manure, it's called green as in mm-hmm. plants, green mm-hmm. manure, then you can reduce the need for additional inputs into your organic system. That's using cover crops. Cover crops. So depending on where you are geographically... In the right. topography, you would choose right. your cover crop based on right. that. Right. And then if you go to California, for instance, and you think about some of the organic agriculture in that area, what you find is that the, the, the metro area of San Francisco has a, has a composting program, right? So if you're throwing stuff away in San Francisco, you've got a garbage bin, then you have your compost bin. Mm. And if you were to follow and you know take take a, take follow the trail of that compost you'll find that it goes to these enormous composting facilities that take all the green matter all of the scraps from your kitchen all of the garden material and wood chips from the arborists and things like that and they take it to a big facility and they compost it and they make that available to farmers so there are some organic farmers who will use that as a source for their fertility mm. So that has no animal input. Well, it, it may have some, but it's it's insignificant and I not see. for us to even think about. I mean, maybe somebody throws uh, some meat into the bin, but very yeah. seldom does yeah. that happen. And in the yeah. context of all the other plant matter, Got you it. don't need it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so that so that is the is like the foundation for like a, a veganic system. You can grow it organically. You can get fertility by 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 growing it on land that's idle in that in one in, in any given year and then that idle land sequesters nitrogen and um, and improves the fertility and then when you plant into that piece of, of land you, you need you need less inputs from the outside your farm and if you can get composts or something like that from San Francisco or or other systems that you can find then suddenly you have all the fertility you need you haven't used the toxic pesticides, and now you have a system that is truly moving towards sustainability because it's using waste products from from human cities and 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 then growing food to feed those people, and the, the circles just get smaller and smaller and smaller, so that the carbon footprint and the environmental impacts is just less and less and less. Right. Yeah. So for me as a consumer, then when I'm, I'm just thinking about like, how can I actually like apply this? Because one of the things I think we want to talk about too, is that there's no apparent way to know whether something is veganic or organic. Like if I just go to a store. So do you think that, for example, it would make sense for me to say, I'm like, okay, I want to make sure I want to buy I want to buy veganic as much as possible. I can go to my local farmer's market and just talk to the different farmers who are there to kind of ask them if they use green manure. Like, do you think that, how, how would I go about that? Well, it, it, the, the movement is not very big. Uh, if, you, if you're lucky to live in some places in California, there are some veganic CSAs. There were... Uh, now, what is CSA? A, a community-supported agriculture where okay. one farmer will uh, sell vegetables to, to local people. They'll, people will pay in advance and say, I'll, I'll take a box of produce every week. They're all over California. Mm. There's Farm Fresh to You, and there's a number of other mm. places. Community-supported agriculture. Uh, yes, and so that's a possibility. Uh, it's not going to be available for most people. There are some people who are selling 
veganically labeled uh, foods. Um, there's veganic bread from mm -hmm. one degree. There used to be an organization called Sunny Zona that was selling veganic stuff in, in the Phoenix area. Um, there's a grower over near Auburn uh, who works with the Weimar Institute who sells veganic produce mm. locally in that area. But that's not available for right. most people. Right. Yeah, I remember um, when I first heard the word veganic, it was, I was shopping uh, at Whole Foods and I stumbled across this one degree bread. Right. And right. I saw veganic and I was like, veganic? And that's when I started, you know, realizing that there was a whole other world out there. And, you know, for those of us that are wanting to be more and more conscious, yeah. you know, like if you're wanting to really grow uh, your consciousness from the... Hey there, Rodney. How are you Hi. doing? How are you? Um, if you want to grow your consciousness from that standpoint, I mean, veganic is the next place, I think, for me as a vegan to really begin to go... Um, into to really considering where my food comes from so that I can be, um, I don't like to use the word pure, but so I can be as conscious, as compassionate as I can possibly be in my choices where my food comes from. If I can service, if I can go to these CSAs, um, community supported agriculture, community supported agriculture, if I, and you're giving me something else to look at. Because if I can utilize that and start getting more of my food from uh, the community-supported agriculture, you know, models, I mean, why not, you know? Why not, you know, out there, if you're, if you want to be more conscious as a vegan, you know, really start looking at a veganic way to live because we need to start doing that. I mean, our world cannot keep being supported by uh, capos. You know, we've got to stop, you know, the use of capos. I had an 18-year-old recently submit a paper to me. It was about 30 pages long uh, on how she wants to uh, completely do away with capos and turn them into sanctuaries and, 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 way, and, and homes and, and complete communities. I mean, it was it's unbelievable. Dr. Silas Rao sent, sent it to me. And it's beautiful. Beautiful. An 18-year-old. Utopian. Utopian. One yeah. call, I mean, it was called Peace. P-E-A-C-E, if I could remember the acronym. There was peace in home and plant. Plant was going to support and pay for it. Home is the community that everyone was going to be a part of. You, you read it. I read it, I, yeah. I let you read it. And then peace is the name of her organization. That's great. Yeah. And so we've got to get to a place. If an 18-year-old can begin to think about how she can transform KFOs into communities and safe houses uh, for people. Why aren't we thinking about what we can do on our plate? Mm -hmm. You know, why isn't it more prevalent, the, the, the education, the consciousness? Just like when I talked to you yesterday and it became very clear in this meeting that you couldn't get certified veganic in the United States, you, that there's no veganic certification. Right. 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 And so, and you said, Renee, why don't, you know, rowdy girl, why don't y'all do one? I'm like, Wow, a veganic certification. You know, with just one more thing to put on my to-do list. Thank you. So, <laughs> you don't have enough of those things. Yeah. So, so can you tell us a little bit more about why, you know, it's not in the United States? And maybe if you do know how the stock-free certification got started in the UK. I mean, I'd like to know a little bit more about all that. Well, like, like any certification, the stock-free started with a, with a movement in, in, in the UK and they uh, there were probably enough growers who were growing stock free that they they got together and they said, well, let's make a let's make a certification so as more people get into that 
into that movement. We'll have some standards that we can all apply and then that people will trust. So that's what it comes down to. It's, 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 uh, it's the growers uh, abiding by those principles and then it requires the consumers to trust that certification and now the people who would actually enforce it then um, uh, have to be trusted and credible as well. And so that's, that's how the organic movement started many, many years ago. Um, there were probably, you know, ma- many dozens and even hundreds of, of organic growers. There was no standard for it. Anyone could call themselves an organic grower. And then at some point they, they banded together and said, let's, let's make some guidelines here and, and let's, let's, let's make sure everybody complies with those. And then, and then the, the consumers, you know, the people who buy their food were, became, started to trust that certification mm-hmm. and, and and before you know it, you have a formal process. Eventually, the government got involved, and they have a USDA mm-hmm. standard, and now mm-hmm. you can trust that anyone who grows under that label has been inspected and complies mm. with those those standards. Yeah. You can only hope. Yeah, it's a book of <laughs> rules. It's you follow yeah. the rules. Right, That's right. It. No, I think it's I think it's very interesting, and you bring up like a few very key points. I think because what's <clears> so interesting with labels is that. As I grew up, for example, I kind of learned to blindly trust labels. When mm-hmm. something has a label on it that kind of looks like an official logo, yeah. you're kind of like, oh, I guess that's a good thing. But I feel like most people never look into the details of that actual label to know what it actually means. And so what ends up happening is that when we see a label, basically what we do is instead of really looking into it and knowing exactly what it's about, we tell ourselves a story of what it yeah. is, and that's kind of how things like humane, meat. quote unquote, uh. humane meat comes about because when something has a label of humane or free range or pasture raised or whatever it is, then it just seems like it's pretty, but most people just don't actually look into it. And the reality of, in the case of animal ag- agriculture, is horrible. And so one question that I like to ask people about this all the time is when they ask me about labels is I ask them, well, do you think that the label is actually to protect the animals or do you think it's for our conscience? And I think it's a very interesting thing to think about. And when we were talking about organic and how, um, you know, they draw a line essentially where um, the process of labeling organic starts after the fertilizer. So wherever that comes from, it's not taken into account. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and and because the other key point that you brought up is that people have to trust it. And yesterday when we were talking, I remember very clearly that one of the points that you brought up, you may have not said it exactly like this. I may be paraphrasing, but what I heard was that one of the reasons that a veganic um, label or certification doesn't exist is simply because there's no sort of consumer demand for it or, or, you know, people don't really care. Um, which led me to ask myself the question. This is a question I want to ask you, which is, so does the organic label exist in part? Um, because of, uh, instead of, you know, because most people would instinctively go to the place where, oh, I guess organic is for me. The point of organic is, is so that I get a better quality product that's maybe better for me, that's probably better for the environment, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but do you think that a big part of that label is actually just to make people believe that rather than yeah. to actually yeah. deliver on that story that it's telling? It's a great question. Right, it is. So in, in the organic, uh, in, in organic agriculture, I would think that the label has uh, matured enough that 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 you really don't have to go and look at the exact rules, but you can be confident that the National Organic Standards Board has has assessed these things. Again, their principle they don't they have no problem. You can buy organic meat too. They, they, the animal agriculture part of right. things is 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 incorporated into yeah. organics, but 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 the whole thing has matured enough. It's a good it's a really good example. So I do believe 
you know, you can buy chocolates that say fair trade. Mm-hmm. And no one really looks into what the fair trade right, means. Right, exactly, yeah. Right, and so what, what has happened is, you know, the coffee industry, the chocolate industry, developed that label so that they can make consumers feel a little less guilty about it, right? And if you really look into it, um, they, they promote it, they try to make it transparent. This is, this is what our standards are. And, and at some point, you, you can trust them. Maybe not the first year they do it, or the second, or even the tenth. But at some point, when you say fair trade coffee now, I, I think we're pretty confident that it's, that it's some kind of fair trade. But now there's, a, there's another layer. There's probably some, some, sta- some sustainable label on it. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. There's also, I believe... Some label for humanely raised meat, I think. Now, yeah, aren't yeah. There some yeah humane of course, and different, different numbers. That's right. And you say, and, and you think to yourself, well, wait a minute, what does humane meat mean? Like, as a vegan, we know there's no such thing as yep. humane slaughter. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but in that case, you're exactly right. The people who, who develop that label are trying to feed on the guilt of the consumer to say, well, this is humane meat, go ahead and eat it, you know, or this is humane milk, go ahead and drink it. Well, when I first yeah. heard, to your point, when I first heard about organic, you know, that I, when I thought I was buying organic, I had no idea I was buying from a CAFO. Right. You know, I had no well, idea no, that organic... You're not buying from a CAFO well, okay, if it's no, organic. No, but right, I mean, right. what I mean is I had no idea that waste was coming from a CAFO right. that could be in my organic food. I mean, right. that's, not, uh, that's not revealed or exposed on the label. Right. You know, the right. label doesn't say this is organic and the organic matter comes from concentrated animal feeding lots. You know, right, and so right, for right. me, now that I, you know, when I learned that, as soon as I learned that, I'm like, that's not vegan. Right, right. I, I can make a choice now. Now I can make a choice to choose vegan, I mean, veganic, you know, and so, and like, just because there's no label or no certification doesn't mean we can't, we can't grow things that are veganic. Doesn't mean we can't source veganic. Well, right? there, there's not enough people sourced supplying it so that... If all the vegans in the world said we're only going to eat veganic, we'd all go very hungry tomorrow. But see, we got this right. generation coming up. Yes. We got this generation, and right, you're right. the ones that are going to be responsible, Ryuji, for creating this, this veganic utopian because, you know, we don't have enough time. Because consciously, I can't consciously eat even organic today without feeling uh, this twinge inside of me that something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. But, but what's nice about about you and most of the people I know is you're, you're doing something to try to change our, our, our world, trying to reduce the, you know, animal agriculture, trying to protect the animals that are in it and change our culture so that we're not raising animals anymore. So I think you can, you can go to bed resting pretty well. If you, if you extend that into the, into the food you eat, you're just, you're just going to like turn yourself inside out in, in ways that are just going to be impossible to resolve because there's a paradox. You have to eat or you're dying, right? So mm-hmm. so you have to eat. What are you going to eat? You can't grow all your own food. So there you have this paradox. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to have to eat food that may have had some portion of of its organic, yeah. of, of this agricultural system supplied by the by, by, by CAFOs. But you really don't have a choice. It's, it's, it's almost like feeding cats, you know? Cats are obligate carnivores right. and and some cats won't eat anything but some tuna fish or right. or whatever and do you do you rescue the cat yes because yeah. the cat needs a life too but the cat needs to eat in that so you're in this paradox it's one of the few 
pure paradoxes there are when you're raising animals that or saving animals that are mm-hmm. that are obligate carnivores. In this case, we're herbivores, so we're eating as plants, and so our impact is as low as we can get, you know, in, on the planet, and. The systems we are that we that we live in just don't allow us to be purists at this point. So, uh, if you've got a little garden, you're growing your own. Embrace some organic agriculture. You talk about it. You're hoping the movement kind of expands. And, yeah. and, and there are some farms that are saying, "Hey, we're veganic, and it's great." Mm-hmm. And, you're, and you're starting to raise that that consciousness, and and over time, it, it'll it'll grow. And so, do you know some of those farms that are veganic right now? Well, there's there's. You know, I, I used to know him because when we were growing uh, a small or organic CSA and market garden in uh, in California, uh, we were in touch with many of those people, and and it's been five years and I and I've lost touch with all of them. But there are some in New York and there's some in California and then they're popping up around the country. I know that when we were first um, a sanctuary, you know, when Rowdy Girl first started, um, you know, a five hundred one c three. You know, Kip Anderson was really wanting us to explore a veganic model. And that's where, boy, I learned more about veganic than I ever wanted to learn. We had more and more discussions whether or not the poop of the cows was going to be, you know, veganic. Well, what are you going to do? Take all the poop out of the soil, you know, that's on a cattle ranch, a former cattle ranch? No, you know, but what we did, and Tommy was like, Y'all are crazy. You know? <laughs> he was like, uh, y'all are nuts. We did these raised beds, you know, and, and grew all this, uh, these, you know, kale and carrots and tomatoes and egg, whatever. We had it all grown flowers. We bought all these fruit trees and we were putting all this veganic soil that we were getting from Houston. We had to go pick it up right, and right. bring it back. It was an yeah. hour away, you know, but by God, it was veganic, and we, <laughs> right, right, you know, and so, but then we flooded, you know, six months later, we had a flood, washed it all away, and there you go. Yeah. But I learned a lot, you know. And, and that's, that's exactly it. It was, it was kind of a, a learning process for you, just to, just to understand how these systems work. If you, if you work in agriculture, you, you, you deal with this every day. Um, conventional growers and organic growers are always looking for ways to reduce their their impacts there's there's the principles behind organic they 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 they, they, they have an ideology that 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 started out as a changing you know, american agriculture but but the things that work in organic are quickly embraced by the people in conventional because the people in conventional agriculture are looking at a practical food system that has as little inputs as possible because they cost money mm. and so if you're trying to grow a crop of peaches, for instance, and you can reduce some of the cost to grow that thing, that means more money in your pocket at the end. And I'm going to, I'm going to put a little defense out there for some of these, for some of these growers is that, you know, they're, they're really just trying to feed people, mm-hmm. right? And they're, and they're trying to make the best decisions possible. Mm-hmm. Now, the beautiful thing about just going vegan is that you, you just distance yourself from 85% of the agriculture in the country, right? So, so all of those fields of soybeans and corns, all of the GMOs that go with that, all of the wheat that's grown for feed, all of the other things that are grown for feed, it's not part of your world anymore. So, right. so your part of the world is, is, is whole grains like quinoa and oats and you know, good whole wheats and, and those things. And if you grow that organically, yes, there are some inputs from that other part of the agricultural world. But but you're you're making it clear that that you you want 
you know, a vegan diet, right? And and that has some impact. It has a lot of impact, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're growing all these vegetables. You're increasing the, 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 the demand for fruits and vegetables. And whether it's conventional or organic, um, it's it's just it's just important that that people are, are 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 pushing in that direction so that the demand for meats going down, the demand for vegetables going up, and as as the agricultural world gets more sophisticated and understands this, hopefully that there'll be more and more people that'll start doing things with cover cropping mm-hmm. and and other techniques that will you know grow good healthy foods with the least amount of pesticides and the the best and and least need for additional f- fertility. And it's just it's just a process. It's like a, it's like a give and take, and a push and a pull, and it's just it's working its way toward a vegan world. We got to talk hope, about it right? a lot more, just like we're doing. I think we yeah. need to talk about it and and have the discussion, you know, more and more about about veganic. Because I mean, I was sitting here thinking of the word ethically organic. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there's organic, and then there's ethically organic, and you know, if I'm going to be uh, ethically organic, now I know I could drive myself crazy. Believe right. me, I understand that. <laughs> I, and I could. And everybody else out there. But I tell you what, I will not shut up about it. Because it's only our voice that changes things. You know, we could be, we could sit around and just be, you know, organic and go, yeah, well, okay, well, at least I'm doing the best I can. No, we're not, in my mind. I think we can take it to the next step, but we have to talk a lot about it. It's going to be, because I, as a 60-year-old woman, do not want to leave this world knowing that I did not do everything I can for your generation, you know? And so, here we are. You know, it is a conundrum. It is a quandary, but I think we need to inspire all of our followers out there, those of you that, you know, listen in, look up veganic farms, find out where they are, see if you can source your food from a, a veganic, you know, grower, I'm going, I'm going to, and the, for those of you that don't know, if you look it up right now, and you too, if you look up Rowdy Girl Veganic Farm, you'll find us on Facebook. That's great. Even though we have not had a veganic farm in two and a half years, three years, uh, it's still there on Facebook because I could never delete it. And <laughs> I could never delete it. It wouldn't go away. So I said, well, I guess it's just going to be there. And But there's a lot of really interesting content on there. So, yeah. Yeah. So let me, give you, let me throw a little, bit, a little bit of a different perspective out here that might be, be usable for people who, whether they're vegan or not, or yep. uh, just, just thinking about this whole mm-hmm. thing. You know, understand it. You know, talk about it. Um, uh, talk to growers if you possible can, but that's rare. People don't get to talk to their growers. It's just it's not that easy to do, especially living in cities. It's just this idea of know your growers. A very difficult thing to do. But the idea of increasing the the consumption of fruit and vegetables, whether it's organic or conventional, is a really important aspect of of the movement. Right? We're we're trying to get the world to to embrace. A plant-based diet, right? So people have even gotten away from vegan. They're saying plant-based. Eat more plants, and and the more people we get to eat plants, the less demand there is for animal agriculture, mm-hmm. right? So eventually, those you you can imagine, uh, just just think about this nice continuum. And we have three percent vegans, and then it's five, and then it's ten, and then it's fifteen. And maybe, but maybe there's plant-based eating goes up by a factor of fifty. Well, the demands for meat goes down, so there's no, there's less chicken houses, there's less animals to get the waste from, right? You can see that how a, there could be a, a shift, and we can reach a tipping point where plants are the bigger source of our of our of our food, 
and, and meat is, is less. And, and that would be beautiful. And we also have to think about this not just from people who can afford to make these changes, but the people who are, in, who are, who are less fortunate. And uh, the, the terms we use is like have food insecurity. And food insecurity doesn't necessarily mean that they, that they don't, can't afford food, but the food insecurity means that they can't afford good food. So what we like to see is people who grow fruits and vegetables and grains being able to provide those into the agricultural system, into our distribution system, in a way that's affordable. So if you're, if you're watching this podcast or you know people who, who you know, can't afford organic broccoli, we never turn them away from conventional broccoli that might be less expensive. Mm-hmm. Okay? Because the, the, the added benefit is that they're eating more plants and, and fruits, Sorry, more, yeah. more fruits and vegetables, more plants. And, and that's going to have an impact. So at the university I work with, we have, we have a big hunger relief program. And we don't advertise the fact that we grow things stock-free. It's not veganic. We use many organic um, uh, ideas in our, in, our, in, in our production systems. But we also use limited amounts of pesticides that are from the conventional world. And we use limited amounts of fertilizers from synthetic sources. And so, so we're, we're technically conventional. We're not organic, but we grow all of our fruits and another five acres of vegetables this year, uh, and we give it away to people who can't afford um, to, to eat. At, you know, they just can't afford, can't afford to eat that, that healthier diet. We try mm-hmm. to provide it. We also give them education and, and, and guidance, and we, we have educational programs for their children, and we just try to help the system along. Do other universities do that? Do you Th- there know? are a, a lot of universities doing that. Some of those universities include dairy and meat, and you can't fight everything. So what we're trying to do is just promote vegetables. If you go across the country... You don't hear any universities promoting meat. They support animal agriculture in a big way, more so than anyone realizes who's not in that system. But they usually don't promote it. Like they're not going out there and saying, you folks need to eat more dairy. You need to eat more meat. What they're doing is they're going out to communities and saying, we really recommend you eat more plants. More Mm. plants, more fruit and vegetables. Increase your intake of fruit and vegetables. Increase your intake of whole foods. It's happening all across the country. Even though they're being supported by animal ag and dairy. Because the people who work for the animal industry as part of the universities, are they believe in that animal industry Mm. and, and they support it. And it's hard to get those folks to change. But the people who work with health and people who work with family science and are trying to get a healthier population almost always promote the increase of vegetables in their diet, fruits and vegetables and whole grains, because that's what's lacking, right? That's why people are so unhealthy. And they're approaching it from a health perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Um, People who understand the environment are also promoting that. Papers are coming out of, all the universities are putting out papers that are talking about how, you know, reducing animal uh, input, animal products in our diet and animal agriculture is, is needed to, to, redu- to fight global warming and, and, and other aspects of climate change. So, so that's happening. And then, and then as vegans, the idea then is just to continue to pro- promote 
good, healthy eating that's full of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and potatoes and all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's a good point you make that it's, um, you know, you're trying to feed, you know, people when you're trying to feed people that don't necessarily have the money. Uh, you certainly don't want to say, well, you need to be do, you need to go veganic. I mean, certainly you want to get as much fruit and vegetables in them as you can, regardless of how it's sourced, right? Right, right. But, you know, but if we're speaking to, you know, some folks out there that may have been vegan for, you know, a few years and, you know, you're looking to go to the next step, you know, you might, you know, look up your, your CSAs. You know, out there. So, right. or or yeah. if you're going to Tony's website, we're vegan on a budget. You know, you're, uh, you know, she's promoting you know all, all kinds of healthy vegetables and whole grains and ways to eat as, as inexpensively mm-hmm. as possible because because you don't have you, you don't know, have the money. You don't have a big budget. It's fantastic. And vegan it, on a budget. And she she you know if if you can get organic, yes. If you can get conventional, yes. Just just increase the consumption of all of that. You know, without animal products, and it's fantastic. So, what all do you do at the university? Well, we we support commercial agriculture in in a variety of ways. We also support healthy communities. Uh, The university is a a big system. At our research stations, we we deal with the details of agriculture. So we we work on disease issues, pest pressure issues. Uh, We help develop systems that require... um, less inputs, better yields. We work on all those aspects of the fine details of agriculture. But we also have sociologists and, um, and extension experts who work with families to try to get them to live healthier lifestyles. And, and then I have the luxury to, um, to promote things like veganic agriculture. You know, so I'm here with you guys today just because there's an opportunity here to, to influence a transition here. And, and if we can if we can make it work really well, then, then, it's, then it's fantastic. Now, it's easy to do this at a garden level, right? So if you, want, if you don't want to have any animal inputs in your garden, there's all kinds of easy. You go down to the store and get some coffee grinds, and then you can get all kind, You can compost, and you can do all these things because it's a nice little tiny scale. It's your backyard. You can take the time, nurture your plants, grow small cover crops in the winter, do whatever it takes, you know, get... Get get compost from maybe some source in town, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you, you just you just scavenge around the you know around your world and you and you grow nice healthy vegetables mm-hmm. in your backyard. But when you scale this up, when you, and you're trying to make uh, a, a, a farm that that that's going to be able to continue in operation, they have to be profitable enough that they can they can continue their operation. Then things get a little more difficult. So now you have to really plan ahead. You got to think about cover cropping and rotations and things like that. And so we're here to try to help, you know, tweak those systems to make it to make it function really well at a larger scale. Okay. And then if you think about scaling it up into feeding the entire United States, <laughs> you know, it, there, there's lots of little growing pains yeah. in there. It can all be done, but it requires us to really think it through and develop the systems mm. that, that support that. And mm. that's what we're doing here. You know, that's the reason we're here at the Barrett's. We're trying to figure out how to uh, create this system and this model so that uh, once the Barrett's uh, are off the ground running, that we can apply similar model depending on where it is geographically in the United States, um, you know, or anywhere else. Uh, so they too can... Uh, began this process of, of transforming their um, animal farms. 
What do you think, Ryuji? Yeah, 100%. There's one last thing that I want to ask you that's kind of like, what's well, not off topic, it's actually completely on topic. But I want to ask you because this is a question that I get more and more frequently, and there are things floating around the internet about this. And it's the idea, and you might have seen this clip too, like there's this clip. Uh, like someone talking about how oh you want to be you want to kill the most animals be vegan do you know what I'm talking about yes that, that one clip where like you know they're like well okay so if you want to kill the most animals you should be vegan because the amount of animals who are killed for you know the, the farmer who grows your beans for your tofu just like kills more animals and like like whatever so <laughs> you know and it's interesting because I have a lot of people just messaging me about this this is why I'm asking you um, and I, I have an answer for that also but I want to hear like your take on it like what's the what are the facts on this whole on this situation okay so <clears throat> the the person who's making that claim is someone who has pasture raised animals right so they're not tilling the land they're not disturbing the soil or 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 removing the existing vegetation they're just grazing animals on their pasture it's a beautiful idea right it just seems like so pastoral <laughs> we 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 can just you know, raise our animals, and and so we're not turning over soil and killing mice and birds and whatever whoever else might be out there. And and when you when you just look at it from that perspective, you say, okay, that's that's pretty interesting. But 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 even then, the, the, you know, when, when when you have that cows out there and they're they're calving in the spring or the, whatever in the fall, and whenever you you've got to set up for their calving. There's been there's been a whole program over the years of of um, you know killing all the predators. So we're not, they're not really thinking about that, right? They're not they're not bringing that into that full analysis mm-hmm. of the situation. They're just they're just being very very narrow thinkers, mm-hmm. right? Okay, well we don't have to till the soil, so we're not killing the mice, so ours is better. But they don't bring in the idea. Well, we we kill all the predators already, and don't forget we. We pretty much have plowed up all this land and planted the grasses we want, or we cut the trees down, and we've already disturbed the system pretty heavily. But we did that in the past, so we're not thinking about that anymore. So right now we have a nice pasture, and it's beautiful, and it's lush, and it can support X number of cows. And so that system is now less, more humane. We've only killed a few cows versus all the mice that go with it. And they compare that to a system that does a lot of tillage you know, it goes out there and just you know disturbs the soil with plows and and grows and grows grain what they're not saying though is that 85 percent of the tillage out here is growing the grain to feed those cows because most cows don't live their whole life on pasture they end up in the feedlot at some point or Absolutely. or their cousins started their life in the feedlot and will continue their lives in the feedlot and you got to feed them and so 85 percent of the prairie and all that land is growing soybeans and corn rotations using lots of GMO products and lots of pesticides and lots of synthetic mm-hmm. fertilizer just to feed those, just feed those animals. animals in the chicken houses, in the feedlots. You know this already. You, you knew the answer, right? Yeah. yeah. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And so, and so, so then we have to think about that because, because there's some nugget of truth there as well, even though it's pretty clear that it's, it's, it's a bias that's not looking at the whole system. And so there is a nugget of truth there. So if you have a veganic system and you're going to turn over a green manure, you're going to disturb the land. And so conventional growers, organic growers, and the few veganic growers are developing techniques that don't do that. 
because tillage is a terrible thing to do to the, to the soil. It disrupts the soil structure. It releases carbon back into the atmosphere. So there are techniques that don't require us to till the land. And we can go into all those details if you want to spend another four or five hours. <laughs> do that. But, That's but, fascinating. But if you're turning the land, yes, you're, you're killing your animals. You're killing insects, mostly insects, because these lands have been disturbed. They don't support the life of too many mice and ground nesting birds. There's just not that many in there. Rabbits and Rabbits, weasels. Right. So there's just not that many in a disturbed agricultural system. But there are some. And if, and if, you, if you go in there with big machinery, you're going to disturb them. Now, obviously, if you're doing with big machinery to feed the food to animals, then those animals are responsible for killing 85% of all the animals that are killed in those systems. Right? But if a fox or something comes through, or a bobcat, uh, I doubt very seriously those humane meat farmers are going to just say, hello, how y'all doing? Come on in. Well, if, if those animals are going to impact their bottom line, then they usually have to be removed from yeah, the system. And exactly. In the past, that has always meant killing them. Yeah, or they're okay. already removed. So so at our orchard in Grand Junction, we encourage foxes. We had a nice family of foxes really? this year. We do, because because ground squirrels have a big impact on our orchards. You know, and we don't want to have so many ground squirrels that, that we start seeing uh, trees decline and our production awesome. of yields go down. So we, we had a nice family of foxes who ate a lot of ground squirrels this year. And just this winter, a badger moved into our, really? to our farm, and 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 we encourage that. We also have boxes out there because that natural system, you know, it's it's nature, and and the, the native predators need to have a source of prey, and and when you have an agricultural system that that concentrates fruits and 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 open ground. You end up getting a lot of prey species in there. You get mm-hmm. rabbits and ground squirrels. You have lots of birds that move in there. And so having some of the native natural predators around helps us to keep that in a little bit better balance so we don't have to kill any animals out there. But and the problem is humanity is going out, and they are killing wolves by the hunt, thousands. They're killing sea lions. They're killing all these animals because they're, you know, uh, infringing on their pocketbooks and that's one of the biggest problems of that i see that humanity is faced with right now what's one of the biggest problems is that we are killing off species left and right not only because of of animal agriculture because bottom line it really is when it comes right down to it because humans i don't know do they just not care do they just not care that they're decimating you know thousands of wolves uh Sea lions. I mean, I read that the other day, and I was just like, "What?" All because they're eating the salmon that they want to cultivate. That, that they want to eat, right? Yeah, I mean, that's it's another good reason for vegan a vegan lifestyle. It's just it, it reduces our impact on the planet, right? So, so if you if you're up in the northwest and there's wolf populations moving in, they have to leave because they're eating the cows. We don't have any cows. You don't have to worry about that. And you could talk to people like the Mark Beckoffs of the world and. And, and many other, you know, Jane Goodall and those folks. And, and when you think about the impact of going vegan, you're looking at putting uh, maybe, you know, anywhere up to 900 million acres back into natural systems, rewilding, right? So if you can rewild it and you can sacrifice only 200 or 300 million acres of land to feed everybody, we need a nice plant-based diet, then your impact is going to be smaller. And so all those lands that are currently grazed or have 
you know, animals on, on them, or if, if you're a caribou hunter in, 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 uh, in Alaska, so you're killing wolves because you're, they're eating the caribou. If you stop needing to eat caribou, let the wolves have the caribou. The whole system yes. just gets rewilded. And if you're not taking all the salmon and you know, the sea lions can have theirs and the killer whales and everyone else starts to proliferate. It's just, it's just a better way to be. You, you all know this. And then people who are watching this probably all know this too, right? So, so that rewilding, rewilding is a really important idea behind plant-based eating and veganic, you know, or, or even just being a vegan. If it's not, even if it's not veganic, it's not organic, but it's just being a vegan means that you're leaving more land for the wildlife. That's was there any, is there any resources that you'd like to share with uh, anyone listening? Any uh, websites, resources, books? Uh, I think you people are, you, you can put them on your website. There's just lots of good stuff out there. There's so much. I mean, you can read it in the papers every day. Well, There's send me some, some things. I will. And, yeah. uh, uh, we will have his podcast live, I think probably, or not live, but it's live now here. Yeah, we'll you, have can, his... you can watch the great movies that have been, you know, that Keegan Coon and Keith yes. Anderson made, and there's other movies coming out all the time. There's there's all these things on health and about how the impacts on the environment. There's many, many movies out there. They're easy to watch. They're, they're disturbing, but they, but they give you a lot of information in an easily digestible way. Those movies usually have lists of references that they go for. You can go back into those references. You can see the books that come out that support all that kind those of stuff. Those conspiracy facts. I mean, yeah, right. The just fact unbelievable, you know, what you can mm-hmm. get off there. Right. And so, so I recommend going that route. Um, I, I read a lot of dry stuff that comes out that's technical papers because I like to, to understand the details that go behind all this stuff and, and be able to then reword that into, and make it available to people. You can always call... Renee, and then she'll get in touch with me, or you call you, and you can answer questions and send them my way and other ways. All kinds of people are out there that can that can talk to this. Well, we're so, so glad that the ranchers uh, that you came out to support the ranchers' advocacy program and the Barretts here in Wicks, Arkansas, as we transition uh, along with Blue Horizon and a whole other team of experts. Yeah, the first ever chicken farm cattle ranch that we know of. You know, that's vegan. Not only are they vegan, they're engine two diet vegan. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, I, I learned so much from these former chicken farmers. Every time I leave, I have a new a new uh, lease on life. <laughs> what about you? Don't you learn a lot when you're here? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, incredible amount. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. So, you know, when, when people generally go vegan, there, there's, there's a little angst that goes with that. I mean, you have you have this 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 principle that you're going to live by. And, and and you know it's true, and, and there's, it's it's not just a belief; it's mm-hmm. it's a real idea that stands up to scrutiny. So so you, you make this transition, but there's there's maybe no doubt in it, but there's impacts to your life, right? So now now people who knew you and your family they're they're, they're not seeing what you're doing, and and so you, so you make this transition, right? And 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 you and you're strong, and and I have to hand it to the Barretts here. You know, we're here at their house, and. And when you when you when you make a decision based on what you know is t- to be true, and and it's not just a belief; it's it really is. You know, there's a lot of data to support this. Um, it'd be really easy to get kind of paralyzed because because the risk associated with this is not it's not insignificant. This is real life here. This is this is a, a farm that needs to to transition into a different kind of agriculture. That's mm-hmm. that's not a simple thing to do. You have no. to leave one system behind and then and and then try to modify that into a new system that's going to be 
it's going to support you. You got, you got to live. You got to make a living, right? Everyone does. It's all new. And so, so, the, so there, the, it really is kind of a brave undertaking. You know, there's there's lots of stuff out there about you know the, a brave new kind of uh, of way of way to live here. And and these guys are on the forefront of that. It's kind They're of pioneers, it, it, real pioneers. Beautiful, I think. You know, so, right, 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 absolutely. And you know, um, just so that you all out also know out there, you know, Sean Munson, our. Um, own Sean Munson that's behind Earthlings and Unity and our recent Dominion has been out here several times and this story, the Barrett story, will one day be revealed for the whole world to see. It's happening. Just keep following, you know, and just wait. It's 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 coming. Yep. Yep. Yeah, right? there are others who've done it. I, th I think it's Bob Camus who was the the pig farmer. He was a pig there. farmer. Yes. Yeah. So, so he he made that shift that, sh that shift, and it was it's difficult, and I, I I'm not sure how successful he is. I don't know where he is right now, and that, and there there are others who have done it. But you're right. When there's only a few people to think about, and some guy named Tommy Sonnen, you know, he's sitting in the living room. My God, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, this episode of The Two Rowdy Vegans. We really, really appreciate it. If you want to learn more about the Barretts, you can listen to episode 7 of this podcast called How to Save 700,000 Chickens a Year, which is all about how they're going from a chicken farm to a vegan business, their story, and their vision. In any case, episodes of this podcast come out every Friday, so look out for that and subscribe on iTunes. We would really appreciate it. If you leave us a little five-star rating and a review, we would really appreciate that too. And anyways, thank you again for listening. We have been for you this week. The two rowdy, rowdy yes. vegans. Vegans ever. Two, two, two rowdy vegans. 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 Two, two rowdy begins. One plus one equals two rowdy begins.